when is it okay for a Christian to get a divorce? And when is it okay to remarry? Well, these questions have been asked by people of faith really from the beginning of, of time. They were asked in the days of Moses over 3,000 years ago, and they were asked in the time of Jesus some 2,000 years ago, and they are asked today, week in and week out, by Christians here and in churches all over the world. And these anguished questions touch every single one of us, you and me, because divorce and remarriage have in some way touched every one of us. Some of you I know have experienced the direct blast and your partner left or the marriage became a nightmare and you had to file. And so you, you know the agony and the disruption and the, the changing of locks and my heart goes out to you. Others of you, you were just a child maybe when your parents divorced and so you tasted that bitter cup early in life. I, when I was a teenager, my parents went to the, the brink of divorce, and so I know what it's like to hide in your bedroom, trying not to hear the, the yelling and the shouting, to hear the, the door slam and the car peel out of the driveway, and to have your grandfather come out wearing his green cardigan and holding his cane and lay his hand on your shoulder and say, you're going to have to be the man of the house now. And still others of you, you've had brothers or sisters or dear friends come to you and pour out their troubled hearts and ask you, in effect, these questions. If they're a believer, when is it okay to get a divorce and when is it okay to remarry? Well, how would you answer that? for them. You know, as people of faith, every single one of us needs to know. And I, I know full well tonight, and I have, have felt it all week as I've been preparing that some of you right now are even getting sick to your stomach because you are wondering what I might say. And I probably can't take all of that away from for you right now, but let me say that I hope to be clear and I, I hope to be redemptive. And so stay with me to the end if you would. So I, I know also that some churches are, are too legalistic. They, they didn't really understand the situation you were in, the abuse, the terror. Uh, other churches are the opposite. They're too lax and so they didn't step up and, and confront uh, the person who really needed to be confronted, and, and they gave them kind of a, a get-out-free card. I've seen both of those situations, and, and I, I grieve if you were not well-served by your church. So anyway, if that is you, tonight could be a very important sermon for you. But really, it's an important sermon for every one of us because divorce and remarriage touch every single one of us. And we need to think about these things. And so these life-changing topics, what, what has God set forth in his word? Now, a, a key part of the Bible's teaching on divorce and remarriage comes in this letter that we've been studying as a church the last few weeks, 1 Corinthians 
which is why actually we're looking at this tonight. We've reached that part in the Corinthian letter. And so we'll start there and then we'll zoom out and take in a fuller picture of God's heart. So let's get started. In 1 Corinthians, Paul answers questions that these early Christians have sent to him. Chapter 7, verse 1, he says, Now getting down to the questions you asked in your letter to me, first, is it a good thing to have sexual relations? Which uh, is not exactly a question Americans ask. <laughs> Insert the knowing and wry laugh right here. But many of the people that were writing to Paul are, are new Christians, and in their pagan background days, there was sex of every possible kind. And so when they think of sexual relations, they're having images of prostitutes at the temple of Apollo or consorts or whatever, whatever. And so some are feeling, wow, in this new life in Jesus, wouldn't it be better to just not have any sex at all? Maybe husbands and wives should not be having it. And Paul teaches in chapter 7, no, bad idea there. Sex belongs in marriage, although he makes a great case he, that being single, as he is, has a lot of advantages. But he says, don't leave your marriage to become more pure. That is the context here for verse 10, which you'll see in your order of worship. But for those who are married, I have a command that comes not from me, but from the Lord, meaning Jesus. A wife must not leave her husband, but if she does leave him, let her remain single or else be reconciled to him. And the husband must not leave his wife. It works equally for both partners. Now this command of the Lord Jesus that Paul is referring to here, we, we read in Matthew 19, verse three. And since it's so foundational to Paul's thought, let's just look at that more closely. In Matthew 19, in verse three, some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him and they asked this, is it lawful, Jesus, for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now, the no, they know that they can trip up Jesus. Remember, they came here with this question to test him. They know they'll get him with this question because it has been a raging debate in the Jewish community for at least 50 years. And the debate is over. How should we properly understand Deuteronomy 24? where Moses teaches that a husband may divorce his wife for, quote, a matter of indecency, unquote. A matter of indecency. Well, what exactly does that mean? So one rabbi, a rabbi named Shammai, said, well, that is simple. He's re Moses is referring to adultery. The scriptures permit that cheated upon spouse to file for divorce. But another rabbi, Hillel, added one little word to help explain the passage. He added the word or. So it read, a, a husband may divorce his wife for a matter or indecency. A matter or indecency. Well, you can see where this is gonna go, can you not? Yup, pretty soon a matter meant anything a husband wanted it to mean, including, and I am not kidding here, she burned dinner, or I just found somebody more attractive. So when the Pharisees try to test Jesus and ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason, they're asking, who's right, Hillel, who says any and every reason, or Rabbi Shammai, who says only for adultery. And Jesus clearly takes 
the position of Shammai here, Matthew 19, 9. Anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, what is Jesus doing with that response? Jesus is doing two things. And he's doing two things at the exact same time. The first thing he's doing is he is preserving the marriage. So he's preserving the marriage and, and this is really important, and number two, he is protecting, good luck reading my handwriting, protecting the vulnerable. So he's doing those two things at the same time. He's preserving the marriage, which is why he says, what God has joined together, let no person separate. And at the exact same time, Jesus is protecting the vulnerable. Now it is hard for us to maybe take in just how vulnerable the woman is in that culture. Most women in Judea cannot file for divorce. And if a husband divorces his wife and can prove, hey, I listened to Rabbi Hillel and it's obviously for scriptural reasons, it's a matter, then he doesn't have to give this divorced wife her dowry back, leaving her financially broke. And then if her family cannot arrange another marriage for this woman, she is left with few choices to survive except becoming a prostitute. And she's probably not gonna see her kids because in marriages back then, children nearly always went to the husband if there was a divorce. So in the same breath, Jesus is upholding marriage because God creates that one flesh union but he is simultaneously condemning and calling down a system in which the man makes the decision and the woman is left vulnerable to a life of being exploited. He is also protecting the vulnerable. And in fact, Jesus so, close, so tightly closes off the exit, easy exit door that his disciples who are men tell him this in verse 10, well, if that's the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to even get married. I mean, basically, if you can never get out, why would you ever get in? Now, this little exchange with Jesus is very revealing. It reveals the heart of Jesus, which is the heart of God. He has a heart to preserve the marriage for the well-being of all and to protect the vulnerable. Now, immediately, I, by the way, if you get nothing else out of the sermon, take that. <laughs> but immediately, because you all are smart people, you're thinking, well, yeah, that's great. That is actually very deeply meaningful to me, but how do those two things go together? Because it doesn't always seem like they can or they do. Because if you start to emphasize, preserve the marriage at all costs, you end up sometimes not protecting the vulnerable person. But if you lean too far to protect the individual, then don't you start maybe letting someone who's just having a tough time escape the relationship before they could or should? Well, yes, and now you know why I think the single most agonizing and difficult situations for me as a pastor and for any pastor are around divorce and remarriage. But God in his goodness has not left us to our own devices. His word really is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. So let's look at three situations where the Bible speaks clearly and specifically into the tension here of preserving the marriage and protecting the vulnerable. And I think 
that taken together, these three specific situations that we have light on give us enough light to walk faithfully forward in whatever other specific situation we may find ourselves in, okay? So let's look at the first one. If I can flip this without uh, knocking the entire lamp from the ceiling. All right. Number one, what about a situation of sexual immorality by one of the parties? in the marriage. Jesus teaches anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Well, the Greek word here, porneia, it obviously includes adultery, but it includes other forms of sexual immorality. Now, this being a sermon and not a counseling session, I can't <laughs> list them all. Uh, but just to name a couple and give you an idea, obviously sexual abuse of minors, practices that are coercive, a sex addiction where the person refuses to seek help, that would be covered by porneia. Can you see, therefore, how God's heart is simultaneously to try to preserve the marriage, but if the, there's been this kind of shattering immorality, he wants to protect the vulnerable. So that's situation number one that the scriptures uh, speak to. Well, then Paul takes this wisdom of Jesus and applies it to a situation that Jesus was never asked about and so did not speak directly to. And that's what we get in this letter from, to the Corinthians. Number two, and I'll tell you what it is here as we go. In the church there in Corinth, there are a number of people who came to faith in Jesus, but their spouse is still as pagan as ever. They're still going up to the temple and doing all that stuff. And, and so they are now wondering, these Christian believers with the pagan spouse, hey, Paul, you teach that we're not supposed to be unequally yoked to an unbeliever, uh, but now here I am. I didn't start that way, we, you know, but I came, became a Christian and he didn't. So wouldn't I be better off, really, getting a divorce so that I can really follow God in all purity? And Paul gives the answer in verse 12, which is there in your order. If a fellow believer has a wife who's not a believer and she's willing to continue to live with him, he must not leave her. And the other way around. If a believing woman has a husband who's not a believer and he's willing to continue living with her, then she must not leave him. In other words, preserve the marriage. But, verse 15, if that husband or wife who isn't a believer insists on leaving, let them go. In such cases, the believing husband or wife is no longer bound to the other, for God has called you to live in peace. So Paul says, I know that when you became a believer, the rules of the relationship completely changed. I know that your spouse may hate that and may hate you because of the change. And God has called us to live in peace. So if they leave you, if they try to live with them, try to make it work, but if they choose to leave, you are no longer bound. Now, this raises the question, when Paul says you are no longer bound in that situation, is he, is, is he saying you are free to get a divorce, you're no longer bound to the marriage, or is he saying you're free to remarry? Which is it? Well, I think the evidence, in my opinion, strongly points to you are free to remarry. First of all, in Jewish culture and in Greco-Roman culture, 
in that day, if you were legally divorced, you were free to remarry, just like in our culture. If you're legally divorced, you're free to remarry. And Paul doesn't say, oh, but I teach otherwise, which he would have to do if he wanted to teach otherwise. Instead of that, in fact, get this, he uses the words, you are not bound, which are exact language that goes on Jewish divorce contracts where it, tell, where it tells the woman, you are not bound, you are free to remarry any man. No longer bound means you're free to remarry. In fact, scholar Craig Blomberg, a conservative evangelical, says that it is this fact of desertion or abandonment by that unbeliever that gives, that basically uh, uh, gives the abandoned spouse the, the freedom to divorce and remarry. And so in Blomberg's opinion, get this, and he's a conservative, Paul's counsel should probably equally apply to desertion by a believer. Now, some pastors I know would not agree with Blomberg there. I happen to agree with him, and I accept that other Christians of goodwill will see this differently. But my point is this. The Bible has now spoken to a second situation in which preserving the marriage and protecting the vulnerable seem to conflict. And once again, it holds them both together. It says, stay in the marriage, try to make it work. But if the unbelieving spouse deserts you or abandons you because of your faith, hey, you're free. And in, in, in my estimation, the scholarship is quite strong. You are free to remarry. Now, many Christians know of these two situations. They've maybe heard them addressed in books or sermons, but many don't add a third, which the Bible does speak to. And the third and final one I'll mention is what I would call uh, economic and physical neglect. Economic and physical neglect. And this is uh, obviously referring to that of a, a pervasive sort. So Exodus 21 is speaking of the husband's responsibilities in a marriage, and it says the husband must not deprive the wife of her food, clothing, and marital rights, meaning physical affection. And if he does not do those three things for her, the Bible says, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money, meaning she doesn't have to leave behind her dowry. No, instead, he's got to give back her dowry because he didn't keep his side of the marital understandings. Now, the bottom line here, therefore, is that if a spouse is suffering this kind of pervasive economic and physical neglect, then that spouse is free to go out, meaning to leave that marriage. Now, the Dead Sea Scrolls include an interesting marriage contract. It's for a woman named Babatha, the wife of Judah. And Judah signs off on this marriage contract. It says, I will feed you, notice food, and clothe you, clothing, and bring you into my house, which is a euphemism for physical affection. And if Judah doesn't, he has to pay her close to two years of income. Now, to get an idea of how that translates to us today, the average individual income in 2020 in the U.S. was $62,000. So in rough terms, if Judah does not care for Babatha, it's going to cost him over 100 k now, again, 
What is the Bible doing? The Bible wants to preserve the marriage, but it also wants to protect the vulnerable from that spouse who is just abjectly, economically, and physically deprived by their spouse. They don't have the basics of life. They don't have the basics of touch. Now, this example uh, was given in a culture in which the man was 100% responsible for paying the bills. And in our culture, that responsibility is shared. So today, this kind of economic neglect, maybe it's the husband who blows his paycheck at the track, or maybe it's the wife who drinks hers away. But in my opinion, it is clear that pervasive economic and physical neglect is yet another place where the Bible steps in and protects the vulnerable. Now, from this teaching on economic and physical neglect, I believe it is an unavoidable conclusion that physical abuse would be included. And most evangelical pastors agree. In one LifeWay research study, seven out of 10 pastors consider physical abuse reason for divorce. And I read that stat and I go, well, the good news is there's seven out of 10. The bad news is it should be 10 out of 10. This should not be a question. Oh my goodness. So let's summarize tonight. The most important thing that I want you to take away is the kindness of God's heart for we who live in a world with people with hard hearts. He calls us to try to do two things to the best of our ability, preserve the marriage and protect the vulnerable. And no, it is not always easy to try to work for both of those things. And so the Bible gives us clear teaching on at least three situations, which when you look at them, I think largely cover the range of situations where a divorce would be a mercy, where there has been this sexual immorality or desertion or abandonment or economic and physical neglect. And then having these foundational situations established for us, then we have to work with Holy Spirit wisdom on the situations that are not as clear, that are resonant of these or adjacent to these, but maybe not addressed specifically. For example, our own denomination, ACNA, has canons that state that uh, a, a clergy person such as myself or Karen cannot conduct a wedding where the two people came together under, quote, fraud, coercion, abuse, or duress, unquote. Well, friends, if the marriage shouldn't get started under those conditions, How's it going to continue under conditions of fraud, coercion, abuse, or duress? Now, let's face it. Questions of divorce and remarriage will always remain difficult. And God's wisdom can be and often is misapplied by individuals and misused by church leaders. And that is painful. But if we are good-hearted believers seeking to honor God, our decision, even though we will feel the tension of preserving the marriage and protecting the vulnerable, we will find a way through. Here's what that has looked like in a few situations that I've had as a pastor. Uh, none of these happened to be at Savior. In the first situation, a woman called me to reserve the church building for her wedding. And uh, she had recently met a guy um, I don't think he had visited the church, maybe once, and she uh, had just gotten engaged. And uh, this uh, 
fiance had been divorced twice. So I explained that in our tradition, a remarriage needs the approval of the bishop. So there would need to be more conversation. And she said, I am so hurt that my church would do this after how many years I've been here. And she left the church and she was a friend of mine. And I brooded on that for days. In the second situation, I sat with a man to tell him he had our pastoral permission and blessing to remarry. And as this news sank in, his eyes filled with tears. You could almost see the sense of shame and guilt just being washed away and tears began to streak down his cheeks. And, and I felt like crying too. In the third situation, a man sat in my office because he desperately wanted out of his marriage. The marriage was fraught, it was difficult. It didn't have anything like this, but it had uh, a lot of issues. And ultimately, and with God's help, he and other people supporting him, he decided that instead of exiting, he would pick up his cross and do the best for one more day with that marriage. And today, this is some years later now, he and his wife are not only together, but each of them will tell you we are doing much better, much better. And I think about that, and I think about his two children who daily benefit from that wisdom of God and decision of his heart and hers, even though they don't know that, they are, are receiving the blessings of the heart of God. Amen.